This morning, we're hearing about grace, but we're also going to hear about and talk about confession and the bigger plan that God has for us through his grace. And so I'm going to invite you to find Galatians. We're going to start in chapter 1, just a couple verses there, and then move to Galatians 2. Paul begins this letter, as we've been talking this month about the mind of Christ, and next month, grace is part of the topic. Paul begins this letter to the Galatians in verse 3. He says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We heard this morning grace being defined. Let's put some more words to it. Grace defined as the generous love of God poured out on God's world through Jesus. More specifically, this comes from the Pocket Dictionary of Theological Terms, a very useful resource. It's, it's God's love poured out on God's world through Jesus, demonstrated to humans through God's selfless giving of Jesus to enable people to enter into a loving relationship with God as the Holy Spirit enables them. Right? And I think that video is nice to portray that we might come to God filthy, but he desires to clean us up and bring us in. It's that loving relationship with God that we're designed for. Grace, that God has given us grace in order to be in that relationship with him. But two things we can note as we hear both this part of Galatians and further. One is, God loves you. That's a truth. We see that all through the pages of Scripture, that God loves you. And if you don't know that this morning, please hear that. God loves you. And the other truth that we have to recognize with that is that Jesus is the only means of deliverance or of putting us back in that loving relationship. God loves us so much that he's done that, that he's created a way back. And many in our world will hear the first part of those two statements as really wonderful, good, God loves you. And the other half as exclusive, meaning bad, that Jesus is the only means of salvation. But we should hear it as good. God wants us to be in that loving relationship so much that he made a way for us to do that when we would otherwise be separated from him. Paul talks about that God, or God gave us Jesus, uh, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Things are different from then and now, but in some ways they're not, right? We're reminded at regular intervals of evil around us and of the curse of sin working its way all around us. We're reminded in big ways, unfortunately, most recently in the shooting in Buffalo or in Texas. I know I was reminded of this as I was reading the story just of Pentecost Sunday. Last Sunday in Nigeria, 50 worshipers killed in Nigeria and as they're worshiping. We're reminded of this through attacks on Asian Americans, all kinds of things that go on in our world and in our country. We're reminded of evil. In the ancient world that Paul's writing to, those things happened as well. 
You also had the issue of, let's say, rich lives mattered more than poor. Of course, sometimes we encounter that in our own world. You encountered in Paul's day, as he's writing in the Roman Empire, that uh, boys were fed better than girls quite often in homes because they were valued more. You encountered in Paul's day that infants were exposed at the dump if people didn't want them. Unfortunately, much of that uh, persists in a different way today. Children robbed of the chance to even have life. There are many things around us that remind us of the curse of sin. But there are different reactions we can have to that. Different re reactions we can have to evil and sin that occur in the world. Let's look at the biblical reaction from God in chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. And we'll consider some other options and then come back to it. Chapter 2 of Galatians 19 through 21. For through the law I died to the law so I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In Jesus Christ, we're given a new reality. John Stott, in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, says... What God in Christ has done through the cross is to rescue us, disclose himself, and overcome evil. That is, he wants to rescue us from this present evil age. He wants to rescue us from the curse of sin and the power of sin that it has over us and this world. He will, in fact, through the cross, overcome evil and has already started that process. That's what God has done in Jesus Christ through the cross. That's God's response to sin and the curse of sin, to evil and injustice that goes on in the world around us. Now even people who don't follow Jesus get upset about sin, angry, have reactions. And I want to just look at a couple different reactions that people can have. And sometimes we have them when we follow Christ too. One is denial. Denial of the problem itself. As if to say pain evil are illusions and that might seem if we haven't thought about it like something that okay how many people really have that well an awful lot because that's the predominant view of hinduism for instance that pain and evil are illusions and you're trying to work your way out of it life by life through karma and reincarnation samsara and then eventually nirvana you're snuffed out that's star wars theology too it's the same idea but they deny it. It's not a real thing. That's one reaction people have. Another reaction people have to the issues of sin and evil and injustice in the world is, is just to have a sort of a sense of neutrality. Right? That if they didn't know the problem existed before, and then they learn about the problem, well, I obviously wasn't involved in the problem in the first place, so I don't know that I really need to have much of a reaction other than that's terrible. This is a simple, this isn't a, an evil one, but this is an example that I think highlights how people respond to it. You know, we use handicapped parking spots, especially the ones with the flip-out place for your van. Those blocks uh, matter. And 
I, I one last summer where I was parking uh, and it was a very busy parking lot. Only two of those spots available we parked. It was pretty tight to get out because somebody was parked in the other one just waiting for someone. You know, they didn't need it. Um, and so I addressed that nicely with the person. Hey, you forgot your handicap placard. Oh, I'm just waiting for someone. Okay. But somebody might need this spot while you're waiting, so could you please move? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But they didn't move. They're neutral, right? Up until that point, they didn't know the problem. Now they knew the problem. They didn't feel like they're part of the problem or needed to solve anything. Sometimes we approach evil and sin that way. That's terrible, but what does it have to do with me? Then there's the self-help way that we can approach it. And this is very predominant within our culture, right? We recognize once we come to awareness of the problem, we're ready to do something about the problem. We try and put together, whether it's signing the petition, going and protesting, writing your senator, I'll find things to do. But we're going to solve the problems that are out there. And, and I want to say the good thing about all of these responses is they at least express some form of discontentment with the way things are. There's something wrong. But the problem with all of them is that they're all insufficient to get to the resolution of the problem. They're only going to treat the symptoms, not the cause, of the problem. And we're all part of the problem. We may not have caused everything that goes on in the world, certainly, but we're all part of the problem of what's going on in the world. And it is beyond us to solve. You and I can't solve a God-sized problem with human-sized solutions. Again, stop. What God in Christ has done through the cross is to rescue us, disclose himself, and overcome evil. Only God can actually fix the problem, not just the symptoms. And, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't do nothing in the world. I'm actually saying we should do something in the world. We just have to recognize the power and the, and the will that's behind it in order to do that. That that comes from God conforming us to the image of Christ. And I think this verse tells us how that starts and continues. Because if we're just in the business of treating the symptoms, even at our best, we can't solve the problem of sin and evil and injustice. It turns out that God's better is better than our best. It far exceeds the best that we could possibly do, and God actually is offering his best, not just his better. The remedy for sin is here. Paul writes these words, I've been crucified with Christ. I was really dwelling on these words because I, this week because I think it's just such a fascinating way that Paul writes it. I've been crucified with Christ. I mean, the penalty for our part in sin is death. It goes beyond that, but death, first and foremost. And as we talked about in the children's sermon, we actually don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's grace. He dispenses it freely because that's his character. We deserve death because of our sin. All of sin, the wages of sin is death. Right? The cost in order to fix the problem was Jesus' death. He offers the purchase price to buy us back. His death buys us back from the consequence where we should have died. 
His death buys us back from living unjust and sinful lives that lead to eternal separation from God. That's what Jesus has done for you and me, first and foremost. And as we continue to read, if you look back at verse 20, it's not just, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul has this other interesting line, the life I now live in the body. Some of your translations have flesh, some have body. That's what's written there. The, the word in Greek, that's the original, is flesh. That's the word that Paul usually applies in places like Romans and Galatians to mean the sinful nature. The part that's living, our, ourselves living in rebellion to God. But I think it's interesting, as I consider that translation here, that, that body seems to be doing something really useful here as a decision point by translating it that way instead of keeping it flesh. Because we can live in a, a way in opposition to God, in our sinful nature, but that is to ignore everything that this verse says. It's to ignore the cross. It's to ignore the resurrection. It's to ignore the sacrifice that Jesus made to redeem us from the penalty and consequence of sin. Or we can live as flesh being redeemed. And that's why I think putting in their body, it makes a decision point. Are we going to be this body that's living for Christ or the flesh that continues to live against God's will and ways? Still in sin. No, I've been crucified with Christ. And we have to choose then at that point whose will we follow. Through Christ, that which keeps us living in sin is relieved of duty. Through Christ, we are given power and ability to walk in a Godward direction where we lacked that before. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That gave himself for me is also very interesting because, um, the, again, the word gave, the verb there, has a tense in Greek. I almost never care to bring this up in sermons other than I find that it is useful in this case. It's a tense called the aorist tense. That is a completed action. So it's happened. He gave himself for me, and it continues on, and it's an invitation is what it is. That's why that kind of thing is put there. It's an invitation. He gave himself on my behalf. That's grace. And it's a specific application of grace, actually, when you get down to it, which is mercy. That is, he did something that we otherwise would have been stuck in our sins. He rescued us, pulled us out of the pit when we couldn't do it ourselves. That's the specific application of grace. It's mercy. And our part, our entrance into that, our saying yes to that invitation starts with confession. It starts with not denying that we're part of the problem, not being neutral when it comes to sin, and not saying, I can fix it myself, but to confess and say, I actually cannot fix this myself. It is only through Jesus Christ that this can be fixed. He's given me the invitation and given himself on my behalf and when we confess, what we're doing is we're going before the living God and saying, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry for denying the problem. I'm sorry for acting like I was neutral in the problem. I'm sorry for trying to fix it all on my own. I'm sorry for doing the wrong stuff in the first place, the stuff that offends you, God. I'm sorry. And we acknowledge our part in the problems of the world and our opposition to God's will in doing that. That's what we're doing when we confess, when we begin to, to say, in fact, I'm not going to live in the flesh anymore, but live in the body that's being redeemed. We say in confession, never again do I want to walk that road in opposition to God. I only want to walk towards my Savior and be conformed to his image. Confession is the first step in accepting the invitation of God's solution to evil. He's fixing everything. Creation groans for its redemption, and guess what? God's working on it, but he's also working on inviting you and I into that plan to be part of that solution. Sin, if we understand it correctly, we can kind of understand why confession matters and is so powerful. It's easy to think of sin in the sense of small s, sin, sins, plural. And indeed, that's a real thing, right? The, the things that we do that are offensive to God and are the opposite of God's character. So, you know, don't smoke or chew or go with girls that do, that kind of thing. Uh, adultery, murder, lying, gossip, coveting your neighbor's ox, all of that stuff, right? That's the stuff, the small, the sins that we do. But we also have to understand sin, big S, sin. It's the attitude of the heart that leads us to do those things. And that, through Christ, is, is what God is trying to do to cure in us. Sin, with a big S, is just pride. It's all it is. And our pride gets us when in those decisions then, when we make those, those small s sins, we are saying, I'm God and you're not. That's the condition of sin. I have been crucified with Christ. What we're doing at that point is nailing that to the cross and saying, that is not my way anymore. That is not who I am. I have been crucified with Christ. Our pride and our will are crucified on the cross, and we come back wanting to do the will of God and to be conformed to his image by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. When we confess our part in sin, you see, we become part of God's solution to the problem of sin. Confession also allows us to actually be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The beautiful thing is, forgiveness can happen right now. Once we confess and we say, Lord, forgive me, it's not a later thing. It's a now thing. We can be forgiven now. And it's not just a spiritual reality like we tend to use it out in culture, which really means not real, is what it means out in culture. It's a real reality. It actually affects our real lives when we're forgiven. Receiving God's forgiveness means we can receive the Holy Spirit, and He can begin doing new work in you and me 
which brings, puts in us both God's will and God's power as we walk into that, into the power of the Holy Spirit and, the, and being conformed to the image of Christ. Forgiveness is receiving God's grace and thus receiving his commission on what we need to do in the world. Knowing God's grace makes you more graceful in a broken world. So you can then approach it and say, I am part of the solution. God, call me in. How are you calling me in to deal with sin and injustice and those things which afflict the world by your will, not my own? I think it's important to recognize the, the outwardness of grace. God pours out his grace, and when it's poured out on us through Jesus Christ, it needs to be poured out from us on the world around us. I think it's really important to recognize that if we follow Jesus Christ, Jesus is not your personal possession. You are saved to his purposes, his power, and his will, not your own. I have been crucified with Christ, and I care about the world like God cares about the world, and I'm going to act that way. There's this interesting story from Voice of the Martyrs a couple months ago. I'll just read a very short part of it. It's the, it was the Bible issue. It said, in nations where God's word is illegal, Bibles must be smuggled in or printed covertly, and not that often comes at a great price. After a Christian brother in the Middle East was killed for smuggling Bibles into a village, his wife decided to avenge his death by continuing his work. She and her parents went to that village and distributed 1,500 New Testaments, hoping everyone in the village would become followers of Christ. Quote, she got revenge for her husband's physical death by offering eternal life, a frontline worker said. Now, we know that's not revenge, right? He's playing on the words. It's not revenge at all. It's the grace of God working through her into her village. I have been crucified with Christ. I have two questions to consider as we consider what that means to I have been crucified with Christ. The first one is this, how are you still guided by the flesh today rather than Christ? That is, it's a question uh, to assess as you go to confession this week, to assess your own sense of pride to assess the sense in which you're trying to just fix everything in the world on your own. Guilty on that. I need to confess that quite regularly. It's, the con it's the, a thing that helps you assess, am I neutral on the problems in the world? Or has God called me into action to do more through his Holy Spirit? And the second question of assessment is, how are you using Jesus as your personal possession rather than the savior of all and destroyer of evil? That is to say, am I just hanging on to the grace of God or am I freely dispensing it around me? Because if we're just hanging on to it, that's a, a moment where we need to confess too because we actually have to ask the question, do I believe that God is the solution to evil and the problems in the world or am I the, or the, the solution? We're confronted with that in these questions. They're questions to help you go to confession. My real challenge to you is a simple one. Just take the words, I've been crucified with Christ with you all throughout your week, and make those a prayer. Don't even, don't even set aside a separate time to do it. 
just in every action that you do this week, say, I've been crucified with Christ, and consider what happens next, if that demonstrates that or not. And if you're a journaler, write it down at the end of the day. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Let's pray together.